John Calvin says the best hermeneutic, which is the method of understanding the Bible, is obedience. So God is not trying to tell us things so that we can be intellectually intelligent or smart or wise in our own eyes. He's trying to tell us things that we might glorify Him and obey Him and love Him and love our neighbor. So He's telling us things so that we might be like His Son, Jesus. And so if we're not seeking to understand God by seeking to be like God, we're going at it, we're going at it the wrong way, and we should expect God to graciously illuminate our eyes to His truth if we don't want what He wants for the truth to have in our life. So obedience and submission. You, you open the Bible on your knees. You read to study so that you might submit to God and, and not just believe, but obey. And by obeying, God says, hey, you're faithful with little, I'll give you more. So if you want to be a theologian, right. um, do what you know well. Start implementing what God has told you. God doesn't give more light until you use the light that you have. My name is Joel Sedeckase. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach Bible at a Christian high school in Chicago. Impacted by my students' questions, I set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion, and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined crew and launched the Think Institute. Now, I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's Word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies, we discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. I'm curious of where you see the failure of where specifically did Aquinas land that led him away from the clear teaching of Scripture as a revelation of God's apology yeah, yeah. or sorry, he, yeah. he added, Aquinas added, because of his leaning on and starting on the foundation of Aristotle, he added a non-biblical attribute to God. He, okay, God has, God is who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't take anything away from him. He ceases to be God if you remove one attribute. But if you add an attribute, you're also going to destroy God. Uh, God's simple and he's immutable. He's uh, self-existent. He's self-contained. All these wonderful. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all these things that the Bible teaches. One of the things the Bible doesn't teach, and one thing that natural revelation doesn't teach, is that God is immobile. That's it. 
that's the attribute that Aquinas added in your book. And that was like the light bulb when I was reading. Oh, that's what Aquinas added to God. And he had to do that because he was an Aristotelian. And Jeff, you're going to have to, I'm, I'm, I want to articulate this to make sure I understand your thesis. Okay. So I'm not trying to make your point for you or put words in your mouth. Please do. But the idea is that for Aquinas, he didn't have biblical revelation and he, he, I mean, sorry for uh, Aristotle, his, his concept of God was that he is the unmoved mover, which does not just mean the uncaused cause. It means something else. It literally means that God does not move. And he doesn't even, this is for Aristotle again, he doesn't even interact with his creation. Instead, he doesn't even think about his creation. All of his thoughts are- You don't don't have a great- Hey, correction. He doesn't even have a creation. Correct. That's right. Because he's not the creator in the biblical sense. He is the, he's not the efficient cause. He is the, what final is it? Calls. Final cause. Final cause. Final cause. So you got, you have creation and God, well, you got the universe and God. Right. And right. Both eternal, both right. necessary. This is God is not alone. Aristotle's in the view. Aristotle. And basically Aristotle didn't have to reconcile his beginning assumption with the Bible. And he was consistent with himself. Right. Now, Aquinas, Aristotle was forbidden because it leads to a God, not like the God of the Bible, yeah. apathetic God, a non-creating God, and so forth. But Aquinas says, look, he gets the simplicity, gets the immutability. That's something we believe in. Let's take that and let's tweak it. Let's baptize it. Let's correct it. Let's use theology to adjust it. But he still hangs on to one thing that he should have disposed of, and that's the beginning foundation that God's immobile, and he maintains that. And then even Aquinas denied that God was a moral being. Uh, He has a different view of the Trinity because he puts oneness above uh, the diversity of the threeness. He tries to explain the Trinity only after he, he roots it as the fundamental existence of God is oneness. Like what is ultimate? He would say oneness and not, you know, that God is one and three. And so there's a lot of things that brought uh, baggage into his overall theology that corrupts it. And so his view of God becomes um, not the God of the Bible. And that's why I think it's dangerous. So we're talking about the challenge of knowing God. Ultimately, as Christians, we believe that the way we know God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make God known. He came to pay for our sins so that our sins would no longer separate us from God. He came to take that wrath upon himself. Mm-hmm. And so if a, since we're talking about the challenge of knowing God, and Aquinas started from a wrong starting point, ultimately, that's going to have an impact on his soteriology, on his doctrine of salvation, correct? If we, if we, are, if we are only able to know God through the Lord Jesus saving us, and Aquinas gets knowing God wrong, then did his philosophy, his Aristotelianism, have an impact on his soteriology? I think you addressed this in the book. Yeah, in a way. Um, it, uh, let me go to it and answer it this way. One, he adopted the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church, and and he was mistaken on his view of soteriology and salvation and the atonement and uh, he, he denied all the Protestant uh, beliefs that he dear that Christ is the penal substitutionary atonement, that there's uh, uh, penal uh, 
appeasement of God, his wrath on Jesus Christ. He denied all that. He believed in some form of work-based salvation that the Catholic Church taught. So, yeah, he was wrong in those areas. But where the Aristotelian philosophy not only tainted his theology proper, it tainted uh, his uh, understanding of Scripture, is he still maintained that all knowledge comes from sense experience and is confined to the language that comes from sense experience. And therefore, Scripture language is language that is embedded through sense experience. So it's not like it's a divine revelation coming outside of the world into our world. Of course, God's using our language, but God made us to be proper recipients of his revelation. So he's not, it's not like God is like, oh, here are these humans I I stumbled upon. Now, how do I communicate to them? Oh, they, right. they don't speak my language. No, he made us yeah. to begin with, to commune and relate with him. So we were made, there goes my line again. We were made for that reason. And then, um, so what, where it taints this whole view of scriptures is, is that all the scriptures for Thomas Aquinas becomes anthropomorphic, analogical, uh, kind of a symbolic, like scripture says this about God, but we actually know that God is uh, beyond what scripture says, that God is this really ultimate unknowable being. And the language of scriptures just takes us to, it goes back to the mysticism. It takes us to a certain edge. And we know that it can, can only commute God in this human terms. And God is beyond these human terms. So we really don't know who God is. Words like love, justice, wrath, all these things don't really truly capture God as God is in himself. So we don't know God. We only know a created a symbolic manifestation of God through uh, symbols of this created world. All right. So Aristotle didn't have the biblical conception of God, even if he may have had some of the attributes correct. Uh, Aquinas tried to synthesize Aristotelian philosophy with Christian theology, Catholic theology. And uh, for you, that, that blew up his whole project. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there a proper way to do natural theology that would include um, a way that is consistent with scripture, not necessarily contradicts it? I mean, you're going to have to. Um, yeah, that's why I wrote a, a, a follow-up volume. Uh, and it's called Saving Natural Theology from Thomas Aquinas. Like, okay, yeah, let's look at natural. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at uh, what we can know about God. And even like, let's see what we can synthesize from natural revelation. Let's build a theology uh, uh, on natural revelation. And we can learn a lot. Uh, in fact, I think all of society, the family, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, um, you know, civil law, all kinds of things are built upon natural revelation. And so natural theology can lay out a whole host of theological insights to govern our not only worship of God, but our everyday life and how we should treat one another, our ethics, our epistemology. It gives us a philosophy. I'm not anti-philosophy. I was wondering. No. I was wondering about that. Like, yeah. like some people think I'm anti-logic. Like I'm using logic in my argumentation. Uh, a philosophy is trying to answer the ultimate questions of life. I'm trying right. to answer the ultimate questions of life. I'm just trying to use revelation to do it. <laughs> do, you, uh, do, you, do you think that God's nature itself is illogical, the Trinity? That was one of the questions I had when I was reading your book. Is the Trinity fundamentally a logical contradiction? No. In fact, okay. the Trinity is what saves logic. 
okay. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Please. Uh, how so? Well, it's not our Achilles heel. We don't have to be embarrassed about the Trinity. So, well, we, mm, that's just weird. Right. No. It, right. <laughs> um, the ultimate, one of the ultimate questions that philosophers have wondered throughout history. It's not like philosophers are taught, right? They're smarter than most of us. Yeah. Um, and they're asking the right questions. Dublin is a philosophy professor, so that's why he's got. That's why he's smart. You're making his day right now. Yeah, basically. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I love philosophy. I, I've studied. You should see the philosophy shelf that I have. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. heavily interested in philosophy. Now, I don't agree with Immanuel Kant. I don't agree with Nietzsche. I don't agree with Aristotle, Plato. I don't agree with them, but they're they're sure entertaining and they're also very stimulating and they're very uh, thought provoking. And they're geniuses. Uh, most people don't think very deeply, honestly. And these guys think deeper than almost all those put together. So I, I think they're good at asking questions and asking the right questions. Like, how do we know what we know? Very important question. Uh, uh, what is ultimate? That's one of the major questions on ontology or epistemology. What is ultimate? And is it fire? Is it water? Is it the atom? Is it, you know, the many? Postmodernism would say there's no ultimate uh, universal. There's just um, based upon an accidental existence of, of evolution. There's just fragmented pieces that don't fit together. And we get relativism. So the many is ultimate. Uh, Aristotle and Plato said, no, the one is ultimate. And when you look at what is this old, this one thing, it becomes undifferentiated, undefinable substance that you can't put your finger on it because uh, if you try to define it, you're dividing it, you're yeah. separating it. So they put one as the ultimate reality. That's what Aristotle did. That's what Plato did. That's what Aquinas did. The Bible has a solution to what is ultimate, God. And God is not one. Amen. He's not three. He's both one and three. He's, he's both, both simple. one and three. Yeah. He's both simple and differentiated. He's both one and many. And that gives you universal and it gives you particulars. It gives you both. And that is, you can't say the threeness is more ultimate than the one. You can't say the one is more ultimate than the three. They're equally ultimate. And that's the foundation of our ethics. This foundation of our knowledge is the foundation of our worldview and the Trinity solves the riddle of life. It's the ultimate uh, equation, to the biggest problem in the world. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, the Trinity is just, it's profound, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis said that the Trinity is either the most complex thing ever uh, possible or the most um, greatest invention, the foolish yeah. invention ever created, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm curious um, if I may push back on this, uh, the Natural Theology Project. Um, in defense of Aquinas and other natural theologians. Um, and, and going back to hearken to Martin Luther when he stood before the Senate and he said, um, I cannot go against my conscience. I can do no other. This is where I stand, oh, so God help me. Um, and he was saying that he would rather go with Scripture than the teachings of the church. And the Jesuit priests later on and the apologists for the Catholic Church argued that Luther was then superseding the authority of the structural magistrate of the church for his own conscience or his own individuality, which spawned the problems of heretical Protestantism, as they call it. 
which everybody becomes their own authority, their own little popes. You know, they pop up everywhere on North Avenue Street. There's their you know, apostle so-and-so and apostle Julia and apostle Sam and Joe, whoever, because everybody becomes their own authority on theology and the Bible. So when you remove the uh, authoritative structure of the magistrate of the church, then everybody can on their own create their own natural theology. Um, so Aquinas was under that that that, that rubric, right? Um, although he wasn't Catholic per se, they kind of incorporated him. How do you deal with that kind of objection that says you and your own critique of it are then placing yourself in your own understanding of knowledge, your own logical analysis of the scripture above that of the um, the hierarchy of the church itself? Because I'm going back, like Luther, I'm going back to the Bible. Um, I mean, like, I'm not worried about some philosopher who believed in deistic God. I don't have to conform my thinking to uh, a non-biblical view of God. I'm going back to what does Scripture say about who God is and how we know God. And the Bible tells us not just who God is, it tells us how we know who God is. It, the Bible gives us our epistemology, and it tells us that divine revelation is the foundation of knowledge. It tells us that we must submit at the beginning of our inquiry rather than being autonomous. We are autonomous, and we get to discover for ourselves what truth is for ourselves. No, God is God. Truth is from him, and we don't know truth unless God reveals it. Now, there is a, a matter of we have to discover, we have to build on top of that. I'm not denying logic. I'm not denying science. But the foundation of everything, he, he gives us uh, the foundation starting points. He's not leaving that uh, for us to grope around in and go, well, well, maybe I can figure out what right and wrong is and what truth is and what who God is. No, he says, let me tell you that to begin with. Now submit to that and then take what I've given you uh, here's a, a nugget of truth. It's sufficient. Build upon that, and you'll 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 be wise. Take that, push it away, and and act as if you're autonomous in your own inquiry. You'll come to a false god. It's a you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and you're creating an idol in your mind. And that's what all philosophers did. Uh, that passage that you're citing there, Jeff. You're going back to Romans one, and we—I mean, we, we've been—we've been in Romans one pretty much this whole time, even if we haven't acknowledged it. Mm-hmm. But one of the truths of Romans one, verses eighteen through twenty-four—if anyone—if you're not familiar with that passage, that's the passage that talks about how man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. God's eternal power and divine nature, which are called His invisible attributes, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, having been revealed in the things that are made, so that men are without excuse. Um, part and parcel to this whole idea of of uh, what what Caldun I think was asking about, um, you know, how is this not just replacing you know church magisterium with my own subjective reasoning? Um, is that God's revelation is actually clear, so that men are without excuse? Isn't that the doctrine, the perspicuity of Scripture, or we might even say the perspicuity of God's revelation, meaning the clarity of God's revelation? Isn't that the sine qua non, the the absolute essential to all of this? Because if God's word is not clear, then we do need a church magisterium. We do need a philosopher or a theologian or someone who has the insight 
who is able to communicate clearly to tell us what to believe. But if God's revelation is clear, then I'm not replacing church magisterial thought with my own subjective reasoning, which might be right or might be wrong. I can open up the word. I can open up my copy of God's word, the scripture, the Bible, and I can point to it and I can say, what has God said? Okay, thus saith the Lord, because God's revelation is clear. So isn't that kind of the linchpin for this whole thing? Um, it sure is. What do you think? Yeah, one of the things that Aquinas denied, he denied that you could know God as the God of providence through natural, uh, he didn't use the word natural revelation, but through uh, his method uh, of knowing God outside the Bible. A natural, the doctrine of divine providence was like the doctrine of the Trinity. It had to be revealed in scriptures for you to understand it. Paul says otherwise. He tells the the Athens, which were basically uh, steeped into the same uh, error that Aristotle was steeped into, the believing that oneness was ultimate. And um, so, could we push back on on that? Go ahead. Yeah, (laughs) feel free. Uh, So. Let's see here. I just pulled this up. The study of global Christianity reports over 45,000 different denominations, 200 main ones, multiple different interpretations and understandings and theologies of the scriptures themselves. They're all reading the same book. Some add a few and some take away. If there is a perspicuity of scripture is as clear as it is, then we have a serious existential problem to deal with. So this is one of the pushbacks some of my atheist colleagues in the philosophy of religion realm would. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I understand that. Yeah, I would, I would say that not all things in scriptures are equally as clear. I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a creedal Baptist. I'm a Reformed Baptist. I think that's pretty clear. But apparently, there's room for debate among Protestants on that. There's a bunch of tertiary, secondary issues that are debatable, and we divide over those. Tertiary issues. I mean, even the discussion that we're talking about now in my book, I think, is some sense important, but secondary, and people divide and fight and feud over it. So there's a lot of division and disagreement upon what the Bible says about all kinds of things. But on the things that are essential, God wasn't trying to make it difficult. He's, he wants us to search the scriptures and study. And there are some things that are more and more difficult to. To come to and to know, but the basics that God is God, that we're sinners, that Christ is the Savior. God's not hiding that. He's not trying to make it difficult. It is clear, and you have to, um, you have to be almost intentional to misunderstand it. You have to almost be blind. You have to hate the truth to suppress it. It's so clear. So we're not saying all things are clear. We're saying the main things are clear. And the things that Luther came to was part of the main things that salvation was by faith alone. I mean, read Galatians. How how much clearer can you get? Read Romans. How much clearer can you get? Ephesians. Ephesians. It's all over. It's like, okay, God wants us to know that. James. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, James, everywhere. It's everywhere. But granted, are we in for a super lapsarian? Okay, now let's debate. Let's, there's difficulty there. That's a little more. Uh, it's not as clear. You know, speaking of clarity, we've been talking some very high-level theology, philosophy. We've talked about the nature of God, 
the purpose of general revelation, how that conflicts with a, a, a Thomistic, you know, Aquinas's view of of natural theology. What about for the for the average, everyday Christian who is not engaging in? Uh, uh, he's not. He's not going to be publishing any white papers at the next uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society. He's not even debating this stuff on Facebook, man. He wants to. Good he news. wants to. You know, right? <laughs> right. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. Um, Stay away from that, please. Yeah, but you know, he wants to disciple his kids. He wants yeah. to share his faith with his neighbor, and he wants to be equipped for when his coworker says, "How could you believe in God? Don't you know it conflicts with science?" And you know wh- what does he say to this? Does he does he go to scripture? Does he go to science? Where does the rubber meet the road yeah, in yeah. in this discussion for the Christian? Okay, two twofold. One for yourself, always go with yourself before you try to apply it to others. Submit to what you know. Um, John what, what do you mean? How so? I don't want I don't want to cut you off. I don't want to cut off your. No, no, no. It's good, thought, good. We need clarification. Yeah. Um, John Calvin says the best hermeneutic, which is the method of understanding the Bible is obedience. So God is not trying to tell us things so that we can be intellectually intelligent or smart or wise in our own eyes. He's trying to tell us things that we might glorify him and obey him and love him and love our neighbor. So he's telling us things so that we might be like his son, Jesus. And so if we're not seeking to understand God by seeking to be like God, we're going out, we're going at it the wrong way. And we should expect God to graciously illuminate our eyes to his truth if we don't want what he wants for the truth to have in our life. So obedience and submission, you, you open the Bible on your knees, you read to study so that you might submit to God and, and not just believe, but obey. And by obeying, God says, hey, you're faithful with little, I'll give you more. So if you want to be a theologian, right. um, do what you know well, start implementing what God has told you. God doesn't give more light until you use the light that you have. That's a basic principle, and I just urge all of us to do that to begin with. Um, Two, if you're going to communicate this to unbelievers, we also know that God needs to quicken them and give them a heart of faith and eyes to see and so forth. But I do believe because of natural revelation, the law written upon everyone's conscience, that every man has a guilt. Everybody knows if he confesses it or not or admits to it or not. Everybody knows there's a God. Everybody knows that they're a sinner. Everybody knows that they're going to face this God on the day of judgment. They have that knowledge. God is better communicating that to you than you and I. You don't have to be God. You don't have to communicate for him. They have that. They're they're guilty. And so I I think the best apologetic, uh, and not just apologetic, but evangelism tactic, like when you go to on the streets, everyday evangelism, is to touch that conscience, uh, get things back to the conscience. uh, and I know the conscious is subjective and it's not a verbal argument so much, but everybody wants to wrangle with words and, and sound smart in their own minds and have the last word, the first word, and start yelling matches and so forth. But in the end, you should just ask simple questions like, what are you going to do with your sins? In the end of the day, how do you deal with your, your guilty conscience? And they say, what do you mean my guilty conscience? You know, things that you've done wrong. How, how do you justify that in your worldview? How are you going to handle that? Well, we have an answer to the deepest problem of man, and it's a it's the gospel, and and it's it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, and they can see that there is a solution to their biggest fear, which is 
facing the wrath of God. Uh, I, I, I would just, and that's just a practical way of evangelizing that I think sometimes is, is gets cuts to the case, the chase of just getting into intellectual arguments. I do though, however, I do believe Christianity is intellectually credible. Um, we don't believe in fideism in a sense that it's just a leap of irrational blindness. No, Christianity is the only rational worldview there is. All other worldviews are incoherent, irrational, and falls apart because all other worldviews do not have the Trinity as their foundation. Amen. Cornelius Van Til has entered the chat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the revelation proper then a proper study of revelation is one that um, holds it in consistency with the Bible, not in contradiction from it. And uh, so then apologetic, the very enterprise of apologetics is what we, we mean Joel do here is sometimes we there are some schools of apologetics that add to the scriptures, not necessarily contradict the scriptures themselves in order to elucidate it and uh, make sense of those in the world. Right. Um, um, the different schools of thought of that. I imagine you'll push back on natural uh, apologetics in that regard, or natural apologetics. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's a place for evidences. I think there's a place, you know, for evidential evidences within the Christian worldview, but it has to be founded on on you know, it has to be founded on the biblical foundations that are revealed in natural and special revelation. Mm -hmm. And there's 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 I think there's room for proofs. And I know there are some presuppositionists that they heard me say that, they go, oh, no, you can't say that. No, I think there's room for proofs. Mm -hmm. But again, it, it's all, it's, it, it's, it, it, in the end, you, no one starts, no one starts in eternity past on a baseless beginning. You all start somewhere. Natural apologetics starts somewhere. Uh, I mean, classical apologetics, they start somewhere. So everything, presuppositions or circular reasoning and all that. No, every apologetic starts somewhere. And uh, yeah. you, you got to prove, prove, we'll prove that. We'll prove that. We'll prove right. that. Well, you start, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And, um, and I'm saying well, the Bible gives us the starting position. If you don't start where the Bible says for us to start, you're going to build something that's incoherent. You're going to build something on sinking sand and your foundation, which you start, you arbitrarily pick. If it's empiricism, like Aquinas, you'll find that it can't uphold God. Empiricism cannot hold the weight of God. God upholds empiricism. And I that, believe in empiricism. Yeah. It's just that God's at the foundation, not empiricism. You believe right. it the right way. The, the very concept of truth, the very concept of evidence, the, the very assumption that we can use evidence and facts to come to a true conclusion Th there's there's already assumptions at play there assumptions about our mind assumptions about the external world assumptions about the laws that govern the external world you know the laws of logic laws of rational inference yeah, the idea right. that these laws are going to sustain themselves throughout time why why would the laws of logic be the same Right. today as they were 30 years ago or 50 years ago or a thousand years ago. Yeah, that, that's right. Because that's why I, I, I uphold science. I, I'm not saying let's get rid of logic, philosophy, or science. Yeah. But science, if it's, if it's, if it's your foundation um, and you pick God on the weight of God, I mean, think of how heavy God is. You think science 
can uphold that? No, God is the weighty thing. Put science on it. Mm. Put science, uh, not on it, put science on God. Mm. Uh, and God can explain why there is science. Science uh, presupposes God. It, it can't explain. It doesn't have the full range of ability. It can explain physical things, but it doesn't have the full range ability. It's limited in what it can talk about. But, but it, it, if I'm, I'm sorry, Jeff, I interrupt you. Yeah. There's still an, um, uh, a big elephant in the room, an epistemological one. Yeah. Which one? You are assuming that the Bible is where your starting point is. But you yourself said that's not where you're starting. You're starting from your own presuppositions, your own points of view, your own language, your own worldview. Your own um, uh, way of seeing the world is coming to the Bible. With You're bringing all that as a baggage when you look at it. In the same way a Catholic would or a theologian would or an atheist would or a Muslim would. You're bringing the baggage of whatever it is, the baggage, maybe good baggage, theology, philosophy, science, psychology. And some people come with a different type of understanding, and they see the Bible, the same book, and arrive at different conclusions. So how do you address that um, concept or objection of saying you're not starting with the Bible, you're starting with these presuppositions that actually help you even begin to even look at the Bible, such as your language, your ability to see the way you think, logic. Uh, okay, I would say it this way. I can understand language. As a kid, I learned language through my parents and so forth. But that's because I could. I was smart enough to do it because I knew there was a God. Um, all knowledge, as John Calvin says, begins on the knowledge of God. And so God would say, like, I've given this to even kids. I've given this to all people that they're not. And I don't have to, I'm not necessarily smart enough to articulate that as a child. Hey, I know language because I know there's a God. I'm, I'm not making that claim. I'm making the claim that I'm building uh, my knowledge on a, a a foundation that is pre-given to me. And the Bible affirms that. Okay, when I go read the Bible, it says, okay, that's true. So I have objectivity to this statement because the Bible is teaching me that that is true. Uh, but subjectively, that's the natural experience that we know there's a God, which we know there's right and wrong. We know there's logic. We, we have these presuppositions that we take as axioms or take for granted. Uh, I could, like, for example, teaching my youngest kid that uh, back in the day that you can't go on red. When, um, when the, yeah, the light turns red, you stop, and it turns green, you go. Oh, yeah. Well, in Arkansas, at least, you can take a right on red. And I, I took her, I went on red. My son yelled out, stop. You know, and he's yelling stop because of the law of non-contradiction. Red means stop. Jeff, you're going. And who taught him that? You know, who taught him that? I'm going to say God taught him that. Yeah. I didn't teach him that. That was something pre-installed by being made in the image of God. And logic presupposes God. It presupposes certain ethics. I can teach my son, hey, don't do this. And there's something within him that says, yeah, that's right, Dad, because he has his own uh, uh, measuring stick of right and wrong because God has put that in his conscience and he can even question me if I'm asking him to do something uh, uh, unethical. But Jeff, let me stop you right there because someone's listening to this right now and they're hearing you say unless someone is a Christian and has an explicit theistic belief in the God of the Bible, they can't learn language and they can't know 
logic. And I know that's not what you're saying. So can you can you address that before yeah. they ask it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you perceive that that could be a, a question. Uh, um, that's why you guys are good hosts. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. All people have certain proofs, and there there are some um, things that all people know that God has installed in them. And he said, "Well, is that common ground? In in a sense, it's common ground, but um, in a sense that we, we also know that they're going to suppress that truth and unrighteousness because it leads to conclusions that is in opposition." to their selfish nature, to their depravity. But nevertheless, natural revelation is effective in communicating certain truths. And the, the heart of ethics and uh, epistemology is God. And so we can, uh, this is why we can communicate to people around the world. Uh, there are certain things that we all have in common, even though there are thousands of things that we differ on cultural differences, language barriers, but we can still communicate to them in a rational way because they're human, we're human, they're made in the image of God, we're made in the image of God. Uh, there's certain things that we can uh, we can say, we, we definitely, um, they know what we're talking about. And, and and that way, when we're talking to a Muslim or, or unbeliever or a self-proclaimed atheist, we can speak directly past their objections and and get into their conscience and bring by the power of the Holy Spirit bring forth real conviction, even though they may deny it and intellectually intellectually argue with us, because something rings true. Uh, uh, the Scots would say it's common sense. I'd say it's the image of God mm -hmm. and divine revelation, uh, and so it's revelation based, and it come and that and that's that's the key to my apologetic. It's it's something that God gives. It's a gift. It's not achievement. So God has to give before we build up. And when you, uh, going back, circling things back around, when you purposefully, knowingly push away what God gives us, you're, 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 you're going to end up in the wrong place. You're going to, God's going to give you over to delusion and you're going to end up creating a deistic or pantheistic deity, which happens on, or atheistic. You're going to, you're going to come to some false conclusion because you're not willing to submit to something God's clearly communicated to you. Okay. Are you familiar with the work of Paul Moser, philosopher of religion at Loyola University in Chicago? No. No? They call, him, sounds, <laughs> they call him what? They call him the Jesus on campus because he looks like the European Jesus of the hair and the beard and everything. Oh, wow. he So he's, he's a contemporary guy. Yeah, yeah. He's contemporary. Okay. Um, he's here in Chicago, but uh, he's written a lot of books on natural theology, and he really critiqued it the way you do, and um, especially apologetics. And his main argument or thesis or hypothesis is that there's no way to understand the God of the Bible or the God of the revelatory nature of the incarnation of Jesus himself by just reading alone or reading scripture alone or even reading philosophy, try to understand scripture alone. It doesn't work like that. You need to submit your heart to the one whom scripture does talk about. The, the word of God, the individual, the incarnation of God, not the Bible per se. And then once you have submitted your heart to him in love, only then can you really understand and grow and learn from the Bible itself. He says he flips it. He says there are many who study and know the Bible very well who don't know the God of it. Rather than know the God of it, then do it. And then it's a combination in a... Um, uh, a yin and yang, back and forth, is what he argues. Yeah, it, well, it's it's sad. I, I uh, 
I'd like to know more about this guy and get his stuff because I'd be interested in reading him. And, but it is sad that there are so many people that know their catechisms, know their confessions, can give you all the great answers, but do not know God. They don't know him. They know of him. Uh, they're intellectually intelligent and smart, and they rationally know him. And so, man, and, and, and this is my argument. Man doesn't have a natural problem. His mind still is logical and rational. He knows math, science. In fact, unbelievers are smarter than believers most of the time. And so it's not like man's defunct in his thinking altogether. The problem with man is not that he can't comprehend God. The problem with man is that he doesn't love God. He, he can't receive God. He can't bow to God. Is because God is in opposition to their fundamental love, is which is self. Man is enslaved to self-love and autonomy, and it's me, myself, and I. I'll do it my own way, and I'm going to live for myself and for my own glory. That's man's problem. And because man loves self, and here comes the knowledge of God, which says, bow to me. Man says, I would rather have it my way than bow to that God. So they, so they suppress the truth, which makes them all the more foolish. It's, it's one thing for you to look at your child who's three years old and, and say, you, you fool. And you go, wait, man, I don't even comprehend. Well, they're just acting their age. So the thing, you know, like say you got a three year old or two year old, one year old. This is a bad illustration, but let's say he's, uh, wetting his diaper, you know, and you're like, buddy, come on, you're one year old. It's time to stop that. But he's one, you know, he's like, maybe you should. Up, kid. Yeah. Grow up, kid. I mean, you shouldn't be doing that at one years old or one and a half. It's time to kind of get out of that. Yeah, get got, the program. Yeah, yeah. But if you got a 30 year old doing that, you're going, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, and that's something that, wrong at that point. <laughs> that's what happens with man rejecting God. Hmm. He's not the, the, the child who's like, hmm. What is that? It's just Greek to me. It's it's just that's crazy talk. No, yeah. man is like, hmm. yeah, I know that that's true. I don't like that. And then that makes them that that makes them a fool. That, you know, ignorance is one mm -hmm. thing. Fool is when you know something's true and you reject it, and that's what natural man does. And so there is a sense that if you're going to know God, you submit to God. And there's a to know him is to love him. Amen. Well, Jeff, we're, we're we need to bring this to a close. Um, but we're having I'll, so I'll much fun. Yeah, I know, I know. That, that's that's always the way it works. We get ramped up. We know we're we're close to two hours in. We're just getting started. And uh, but you know, uh, people will only listen to so much. So maybe we have you on again to talk about the new book or one of your other books. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you, my big takeaways from this conversation is. We're talking about natural theology it done in a particular way, in the Thomistic way, which is really the Aristotelian way. When you start with the wrong starting point, you're going to end up in a wrong place. You're going to end up at the wrong destination. Whereas when you start with God's revelation, you're going to end up in the right destination. And God's revelation is clear. Ultimately, God's revelation is is trustworthy. We can stand on that, believe it for ourselves. This is, I think, where that rubber meets the road. We believe in, I love what you said, a theologian needs to start with himself. Put into practice what you already know. God's not going to give you more light until you use the light you've got. And then, look, we want to be evangelistic. We want our theology and our apologetics to serve 
our evangelism. How do we do that? We, we start with God's word. God's word says that all men know God and yet suppress the truth. So we appeal to the conscience and we bring them to the gospel. And just in case anyone is listening and doesn't know the good news about Jesus Christ, the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus died for sinners like us, was buried, was raised to life on the third day, and right now is ruling from heaven. There are only two alternatives in life. You either submit to Jesus, repent of your sins, receive him as Savior and Lord, or you continue in, as Jeff was saying, as the Apostle Paul says, you continue in suppressing the truth, and you refuse to know God. And the consequence of that is ultimately death and hell. It's not pretty. It's fair. We all deserve it, but it's not pretty. And the three of us right now, we don't want that for you. So if you want to know more about that, by all means, you can get in touch with us here at the Think Institute. You can go to thethink.institute slash contact. And Jeff, would you tell us if someone wants to follow your work, your books, the school, somebody wants to enroll at, at uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary, how do they get in touch? How do they follow your work? Yeah. First of all, you can... Um Get a hold of me through fruitgracepress.com. Uh, uh, there's the content uh, there uh, where you can reach uh, one of us at fruitgracepress.com. You can see all my books. You can see all the other books that we're publishing. And then you can go to gbtsseminary.org and learn about uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary and, and contact me through that page as well. So either way, you can get, me, get you to me. Wonderful. Prof. Caldoun, any closing thoughts? So I want to say thank you for your labor of love and working so hard on that and the material, and may God continue to bless the work of your hands. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Jeff, thanks so much for, for joining us. Look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for writing this very controversial book and coming on here to explain it, to defend it, and uh, wish you well. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, guys, so much. All right. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedecase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support The Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Mm-hmm.